Welcome to Alive and Kick It in the 90s football podcast. The podcast is more 90s than Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio on board a sinking ship. Well done to Leo at the weekend. Thanks for downloading. As always, I'm Ash Rose here for your 90s podcast of pleasure as we look back at the decade that changed football forever. Hope you enjoyed last week's show. It seems so by looking at some of the figures. So you really did like, like our look back at USA 94 last week. I certainly did. Um, I'm even a little bit sad that that theme is now done because it was, as I said last week, my favourite World Cup and some top memories we had last week with the gang um and saying that actually i was driving and this is completely true i was driving earlier this week um driving my dog back from the groomers that's how genuine it was and i had my itunes on shuffle in the car um and between some some of the 90s nonsense that were on them as is my horrible musical taste the itv's theme tune to usa 94 popped on my car stereo which we talked about last week and it's it's brilliant i said it last week's show if you haven't heard this tune go back on twitter or on our theme or google it it's called glory land it's such a cheesy song the saxophone in it is absolutely ridiculous um, but there i was driving down uh, what was it the m20 listening to a 1994 theme tune um i think i need to update my itunes a little bit more but i loved it and i loved that theme tune and it seems that you guys loved last week's show so thanks for that Something else I wanted to say as well before we get into this week's meat of the night of the 90s show um, is a, a kind of a football pet hate of mine. And before I go into this kind of mini rant, let me say I'm, I'm fully aware how anal and irrelevant it is. And I should be more bothered by ticket prices or climate change like Mr. DiCaprio. But every year it annoys me. So tell me this. Why? When someone now wins a cup at Wembley like Manchester City did on Sunday, why does the captain no longer go up first, collect the trophy and then hand it down the line like we're used to? Because now, instead, all we end up is this messy bundle of players hovering while the captain kind of squeezes through the middle like a bus queue. Is it, is it something to do with camera angles or the way the new stadium is built? It's just, it was just much cleaner, the older and nicer way when it was in not just the 90s, but in the 80s and in the 70s and so forth. When the skipper went up first, you got that angle. We all seen it very much times before in the Royal Box, lifting the cup. But they don't do that anymore. It's this weird huddle. And I can only assume it's something to do with where the new stadium's built. But I don't like it. I know. And that's my mini rant for this week. Uh, I'm going to stop that now because I'm sure it's very anal, very irrelevant. But it just gets on my goat a little bit when I watch Cats Fanals. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about tonight. And we're chatting all about managers in the 1990s it's something we didn't quite cover when we did team of the decades but we'll use the kind of the same format for anyone who remembers what we did on those shows um so we'll be talking about the best the worst and all the trophy winners uh in the dugouts basically in the 1990s plus we've got two interviews for you as well yet we're really again spoiling you this week two four 90s players on the phone uh, but firstly here's how you can keep in touch with us you can follow us on twitter and on facebook at ak90s and uh, again always say keep those images coming stuff it's great to hear from you guys um it actually spawned an image we put on facebook earlier in the season of the tonka kenner superstar figures which we'll talk about in toys and games in a few weeks but it's actually spawned a facebook group of their own which they're now trading pictures and how to buy and sell these figures because they're quite rare now from the early 90s we'll talk about them in detail in a few weeks but it's good to see that we've kicked off something there on facebook so do join in the fun on twitter and on facebook and of course if you want to join in the fun on all the previous shows please do um, you can go on itunes and listen to all 24 uh, 25 sorry now previous episodes of the podcast on itunes um just search for alive and kick in click of one button you can subscribe to the podcast so it just downloads to your device every week with no hassle whatsoever and of course if you always say just you can leave us a little review and a little rating it really does help us um we got some great viewing figures on last week's show and we want to keep that momentum going um the 80 you know the 90s trip that we're doing the ak 90s trip that we're doing much appreciated and it's lo- it's great to hear from you guys so do keep them coming but let's meet tonight's guest then uh, firstly my usual partner in crime he's my bret hart to my jim the anvil neidhart from itv mr joel young how you doing buddy i like that that was very good although i thought i was the fat ginger one so. <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say sure michael to my Janae, but i didn't want to put that on any of us well I, i'm quite happy i'm quite happy to be my Poor old Marty Jannetty. Marty Jannetty, you know, that would be the problem, me and you. We'd both want to be Marty <laughs> Yeah, we would do. That's for another podcast. Anyway, alongside him, we have making his second appearance on the show, falling with soccer stars, Dominic Hanley, our main night fan. How are you doing, Dom? Uh, good, thank you, Yash. And yourself? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us. And making his AK 90s debut, freelance football writer across Merseyside for a number of titles, is Richard Buxton. Good evening. 
Evening there. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll get you guys' CVs in just a second, but here's a few things that happened this week in the 90s. On the 2nd of March, 1991, you may have seen this all over Twitter yesterday, uh, Ryan Giggs made his debut for Manchester United, coming on as a sub for Dennis Irwin against Everton. And as we said, he did all right after that, didn't he? On the 3rd of March, 1995, Crystal Palace striker Chris Armstrong is offered counselling after admitting cannabis addiction. On the mm. 4th of March, 1995, Man United hit Ipswich for nine as they set a Premier League record with their 9-0 win over the Tractor Boys and Andy Cole grabbing five. It's very Man United this week, actually. On the 4th of March, 96, Eric Cantona ends Newcastle's unbeaten home record with the winner for United as they go one point within their rivals and go on, of course, to win the title that season. On the 7th of March, 1993, Tony Vanderbilt's named David Platt as his new permanent England skipper. And on the 7th of March, 1999, Vinnie Jones announced his retirement from football to pursue his fledgling movie career. Uh, let's do some CVs then. Um, Dom, second appearance, we do games. So your favourite Man United game of the 90s, I bet you've got a fair few to choose from as well. Um, yeah, there are a few. Obviously, the Champions League final would rank up there just for the way it ended. Um, and also the FA Cup semi against Arsenal with Giggs scoring the uh, wonder goal. But I'll probably actually plump for the Juventus match in um, yeah. 97, the uh, 3-2 at Old Trafford, yeah. where Del Piero scored, I think it was the first minute, and then United went on to win 3-2 and Zidane got a consolation in the 90th. Um, I'll probably put that one up there. Called the Roy Keane game, isn't it? Really, because it's the yeah. the game Roy Keane got. He was booked in, wasn't he? And still played out of his skin. Blah 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 blah. That's how it's remembered, isn't it? Um, no, that's the uh, semi final '99. Oh, sorry. Oh, about the oh, I'm getting confused. I'm getting me 19. <laughs> sorry about that, guys. Um, yes, I remember that one. Yes, much better. Yes, a, a, another great game for United there. Can't get me United Juventus matches mixed up. It must be very, very difficult to choose good games from the 1990s when you're a Manchester United yeah. fan. As a Middlesbrough fan, I've got about four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep your eye. I've got one. Um, but moving on, uh, your favourite game outside of Old Trafford then, Dom, um, in the 90s, what would it be? Um, it didn't produce the right result, but I remember it for uh, probably for all the wrong reasons. England Argentina in the ninety eight World Cup. Yeah, um, I think it was just a change of emotions from being in front, having Shearer's goal disallowed, Beckham sent off. I think it pretty much had everything. Yeah, we got knocked out, but it was still a really good game to watch. And looking back on it, it was probably one of the first real big games that I really enjoyed. Yeah, it often comes up. Actually, it was uh, it had a game? It was a game that had everything, wasn't it? As I like to say, was yeah. yeah. Shame about the result, but definitely a game that had everything. Um, going on to Richard, then it's your first appearance. Um, Liverpool. We've had a few Liverpool fans recently, and when we talk about their favourite player of the nineties, it's usually one name. Are you going to stick to type? I'm not true to form. I'm going to uh, go against the grain on this one. Um, my favourite Liverpool player is Robbie Fowler. Shock horror! Um, <laughs> Twitter might explode on that revelation. It's actually um, another local player, Steve McManaman. Good, good, yeah. Um, just, I think McManaman's um, contribu- contribution to Liverpool's history is often understated. Obviously, for the the cloud he went under when he went to Real Madrid, under the Bosman ruling, being the first high-profile player to use that. But he was just such a phenomenal player. I mean, he was a proper winger, this spindly-legged kid from Kirkdale, up, up not far from Anfield actually. Um, and he had some, a serious engine on him. He could beat players at will. I mean, the, the goal that everyone remembers is that one against Celtic in 1997, yeah. Yeah. where he takes it from deep in his own half, beats one, goes ra- one player, goes round him, beats another, and scores an absolutely sumptuous shot into the uh, into the bottom right hand corner. And that was actually a trademark goal for McManaman. I mean, I remember him at the um, the 95 League Cup final. Or the Coca-Cola Cup, as it was known back then, and he was just um, he was just mesmerising then, and I think he was um, probably one of the best players Liverpool had in the nineties, which was a hard time because the league title was often proved elusive and continues to to this day. Um, and he also made Robbie Fowler's job quite easy. Um, I mean, the manman did all the running, and Fowler just had on the plays and, and scored some wonderful goals. But I think. The work McManaman did was often understated, and I think again, I think he um, he doesn't get the credit because he obviously left in the same yeah. uh, acrimonious circumstances, similar to Michael Owen. But I think his his contribution, similar to Owen, is is probably greater than Fowler's, given the impact. Yeah, just... does does Robbie Fowler stay as loved as he is without Steve McManaman? Well, I, I don't know if he scores as many goals in the in the pre 2000s um, period I think McManaman did a lot of the running and I think the classic example of that was the um, the Newcastle game in 1996 McManaman did practically put it on a plate for Fowler to to head it into the net um, <laughs> on the floor as it happens um, mm. so I do think I do think that 
as a combination, they were they were lethal. And I think McManaman had his first share of goals, but you do wonder if he wasn't putting them on the plate for Robbie, would he have got more? Yeah, I think McManaman was so. I've said this on the show before. He's such an underrated player, and I think you're right. He doesn't get the same reverence as, he, as Robbie Fowler does. Um, although he didn't play for Man United like Mike Owen, did he? So I suppose that's one that to compare him with. Um, Richard, outside of Anfield then, um, your favourite player of the 90s? Well, I've found a bit of a theme with this one. I'm going for players who make uh, beating opponents look easy. Um, again, probably another left-field choice here. People might pick Zidane, Brazilian Ronaldo, um, what have you. Uh, I've gone for Michael Wildruff. Oh, interesting. Oh. I had him before. Yeah, interesting. Go on. Yeah, he's um, probably my all-time favourite player. He's... Yeah. Um, He's, he had a real conviction in what he believes and he obviously didn't go to Euro 92 because he didn't fancy the chances and that came back to bite him on the backside yeah. uh, quite significantly. But you have to admire him for sticking to his guns on that one. And also the team he was a part of with Barcelona, the dream team yeah. under Johan Cruyff, was remarkable. I mean, his relationship there was soured a little bit by what happened with uh, Romario coming in and the, the foreigners rule where you can only have three, a maximum of three per game. Um, and I feel he was... a bit unduly um, put, uh, suffered because of that and um, I was actually in Barcelona a few weeks ago on a bit of a, I had a bit of a busman's holiday I ended up on the new Camp Tour and mm. um, actually a bit of gas there was no trace of um, of Michael Aldrup in, in yeah. the museum I mean there was a lot there was even um, the Lewis Figo shirt you'd think that would have been Burned. stuck on, yeah. a, on, a, on a pyre um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Aldrup doesn't seem to be he seems to have been erased from history even though you look at the other list of people who have, have vaunted him, you, you, Messi, Iniesta, Cruyff, Guardiola, Koeman, Marino, Stuchkov. He's a remarkable player. And again, unlike Figo, he didn't actually um, re- receive that much um, ill will from Barcelona fans when he moved directly to Real Madrid. So I think, uh, for, for me, he was the most complete player, even in the World Cup of 98, when he was 34 and then um, called it a day. I thought he was just remarkable. The, the, the movement on him, the vision... Everything about him, he's just a complete player for me. And I was fortunate enough to actually, when he was a Swansea manager, um, interview him, and it was quite quite a dream come true, really. Yeah, no, good choice. We've had that before. Um, moving on to Joe, um, we, obviously we don't do CVs with you anymore because you've been we've run it. You're part of the furniture, the part of the nineties furniture. Such an such an enormous CV so far on this program. You have right, really biggest CV you've ever had. But I will ask yeah. you how you were. Uh, Soccer AM, you were at this past weekend. How, <laughs> which is a name from the which started in the nineties. How started. was how was that experience being on Soccer AM? Well, we, I, I, I kind of just got a phone call saying, "Do you fancy going on this?" I was like, "Yeah, go on, I'll go along for the laugh." Yeah, it was good fun. Terrible penalties. Yeah, I really. <laughs> really I, I scored. I scored one of mine. That's all I care about. But that's a lot harder than you kind of think. What What happened as we went in? We because they take you out for a little practice first, and obviously you know everybody's going bottom right, bottom right. But the lip is. Yeah, I thought the lip would be about sort of six inches, and the lip is actually about three and a half feet. So, so every effort that I was getting going bottom right was completely wrong. But then as we were out there practicing, Fenners came out and promptly like banged three into every. Side of sort of Manuel Neuer, so I was like, "Oh, there's a bit of gamesmanship, isn't it?" You know, there you go. You've just really put us off our game. But um, no, you know, just good fun, really good fun. And then went off to Fulham and, and won. So that was uh, that was good, yeah. And you know, and we all wore our. We t- I talked about Ali last time I was on, but uh, we all had our Alistair Brownlee shirts on, which uh, Middlesbrough provided for us. God bless them. Oh, very nice. So um, yeah, so lovely stuff. Happy days. Good. And well, tonight's theme is managers. And before we talk to our first guest, I thought I just. As we're on the CV and club themes, I'll talk to each of you about certain managers, maybe of your club. And then, of course, ending with Dom, which will kick off really talking about the game changers. But while I've got you, Joel, I mean, Brian Robson is obviously remembered as probably the, the bulk of the 90s managers mm-hmm. at, at Middlesbrough. So would he have to be kind of your 90s manager of, of, of the club? You cannot underestimate for a second what Brian Robson did for Middlesbrough. Um, the club wouldn't have done anything they'd done since unless Robson came to the club. I mean, at the time, it was talked about that Robson was going to come to Middlesbrough for maybe two or three years and then go to Manchester United and take over from um, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, That was the chat at the time. He absolutely transformed the club. And when he left, he was booed. And I still find that absolutely disgusting his last ever game that he did with Terry Venables uh, this is getting into 2000 sorry about that um, yeah, yeah but um, it, it, the man sort of absolutely transformed what the club would and could be uh, you know we, we were at Ayrson Park when he came and joined the plans for the new stadium were in place 
but he made it an exciting, incredible, vibrant thing to come. And players wanted to come to play for Brian Robson. And, you know, we always talk about Janino, Ravinelli, um, Emerson. But even later on, you know, after that, players were still wanting to come to, to play just for him. It wasn't Middlesbrough. You know, it might have become Middlesbrough later on. But it wasn't Middlesbrough. People were coming to play for Brian Robson and Brian Robson only. And, you know, it was his first managerial job. Um, he got us promoted in a season, um, his first season, where there was only one automatic promotion spot. So he had to go up as champions. Um, and he did, you know, and kept us up. Kept us up the first season, the second season, obviously, the three points. Got us straight back up again. Um He's really underrated, I think. I think I think most sensible Middlesbrough fans will see him as, you know, see him for the job he did in transforming the club. Um, there's some people who are still a bit naysayer on it. I personally don't understand it. I think he absolutely showed what Middlesbrough Football Club could be and transformed us from a sort of little football in yo-yo backwater into, you know, all right, we're, we're still down now, but, you know, cup finals, challenging for Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just absolutely... Uh, one of the one of the probably six most important people in the history of the club, I would say. Mm. And who could forget that picture of him when he made manager of half wearing a suit? And, <laughs> well, like and the, half wearing the football kit. Was, yeah, the the bottom half was the shorts. Yeah, brilliant. So it's him in the shorts and the socks with his foot, and he's got and, and then he's got his nice uh, plaid. <laughs> Jacket on, tweeds in it. Yeah, it was so. It's 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 just incredible picture. picture. Nobody thought just wear the shirt because because they were trying to illustrate he'll be the player and the manager. Yeah, but oh my god, yeah, Yeah, it it is. We'll put it on Twitter again later because it's a great picture. It it is. It is absolutely fantastic. God, God bless him. You know, um, and he he still lives up there. I think although he's from Durham originally, um, but he's still up and around there. And love Brian Robson. Gotta love him. Yeah, let's move to Merseyside then. Kind of plethora of managers, but mainly transitional, really, for Liverpool, wasn't it, in the 90s, with Dalglish to Souness to Evans, and then right at the end of the decade when they went to Evans and Julia. How do you see those three and compare them, Richard? Well, I mean, I was a bit unfortunate in, in, in that I actually missed the back end of the Dagley train. I was actually born into a world where Everton won the league, so it was uh, not the best start uh, <laughs> for footballing life. And then I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming to Anfield every fortnight to watch uh, Graeme Souness football. And it wasn't the best. It was, um, there was a lot of promise there. Obviously, you had McManaman come through, Robbie Fowler later on. Um, and there were players about that that could have made the difference. I mean, the one that by the memory I have from my first game was... Um, that Don Hutchinson scored the winner, um, and he was a player who should have achieved a lot more. Yeah. Um, there was a lot about the Sooners' reign that was a bit, um, a bit strange because it was, it was almost he was trying to accelerate what English football eventually woke up to, but it just didn't take um, for reasons that we'll probably explain later in the show. Um, the, the move to, to back to the boot room, back to what what Liverpool had been brought up on in appointing Roy Evans because the Sooners' reign had gone beyond the pale by the time they were knocked out by Bristol City um, so the move to Evans was, was considered a welcome one the players obviously loved him um, maybe he was a bit too familiar with the players sometimes yeah, you, hear nice. these, yeah. you hear all these these claims and accusations and you see about the way the whole Spice Boys culture um, evolved around the club and it was actually covered quite extensively in, in a book um, last year about and a lot of the players gave their side of the story including Evans and you do wonder a lot of what ifs. I mean, there was talk about uh, Peter Schmeichel and Eric Cantona possibly being at Liverpool, um, both coincidentally during the soonest time, but it just never materialised. And you do wonder what sort of impact yeah, those players would have made. Yeah. Um, and then when they shifted towards the end of the decade, towards the the Huli Evans thing, it was a it was a bit of a mess. Um, it should never really happen, in truth. I mean, it undermined Evans' authority, and I think Liverpool needed a bit more of a regimented structure. They, They'd thrown away a great chance to win the title in '97, and the move to bring Huey in was on the back of um, his technical director role as part of the French Football Academy. I think we remember the um, the '98 team with Zidane, Henri, and the like. Yeah, they were yeah. they were credited as as coming in under Huey's tutelage. Um, Funnily enough, his time as manager of the French national team seems to be seems to be airbrushed out at the time. Yeah, but it ultimately proved a good move for Liverpool in the long run with the, the 2001 success but it was a sad way that Roy Evans was treated it was it was very poorly handled but then again a lot of things about Liverpool in the 90s were yeah 
good good summary there of the, of the gaffers and Phil. before we talk to dom about mr ferguson um just me personally as a qpr fan we had uh Don Howe at the beginning of the decade, uh, the late Don Howe, brilliant, brilliant coach. Not you know, never really would made it as number one, but he did very well at QPR. The great Joey Francis was probably the manager people remember us most uh, of that decade and took us to top five in the Premier League in the inaugural season. Still uh, got the same hair. Still got the same hair <laughs> as well. Brilliant head of hair that is. I don't know. If, it looks like a, like a some sort of furry animal was just just laid on his badger. Badger. Yeah, some sort of badger just lived there, and it's, he's quite happy with it. He's still rocking it. I'm loving it for Jerry Francis. And then later in the decade, we had Stuart Houston and Bruce Rioch as a double team there. Right. Well, we had we had Bruce Rioch in the '90s as well for about three months, right at the start. Yeah, he's he's never really. I think other than Bolton, he's not really done as well as everyone. You know, that ill-fated spell at Arsenal as well, which we'll talk about briefly in a minute. But that's move to Dom. Then obviously, we can't talk managers of any decade, um, any of us, without talking about Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, Beginning in the 90s, of course, it was all very different when he was still under a lot of pressure before the FA Cup win in 1990. But your mem- your strong memories, Don, will be more of the later decade. And what more can you give and say about Mr. Ferguson? Um, well, like, like you said, he started off the decade quite rocky. Probably the same sort of pressure Van Hal found himself under this season. Um, they're a big club that are expecting to win things. And we're coming to, what, 26 years without winning the league. Um, and the fans were getting restless but luckily the Cantona signing was a catalyst that got us to win the league um, and he pro- that's probably the best signing he ever made I know Ronaldo 10 years later came at what seems as a snip of a price now com- compared to the 80 million um, had he not signed Cantona who knows where he would have ended up yeah. um, but I also think you can see from the way United have been since he's left what he brought to to the team and how he managed to get the players like up and ready for the games. No matter how good they may be, he managed to get them playing at their best ability that they that they had. Um, the likes of Cleverly in that in the recent era uh, played really well under him. Left uh, once he once he had left, they seemed to drop off. And I think had he left earlier on in his career, United would have seen this lull a lot earlier. Um, yeah, the 90s for United, definitely their best decade, are the late 2000s. Yeah, and Ferguson very much part of that. Joe, as a, obviously very unbiased towards May and I, because although Richard being a Liverpool fan has yeah. slightly mixed views, um, I mean, it's hard to put into words Ferguson's impact in the 90s, is it really? He's the boss, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's all there is. Every single aspect of the game, whether and some of them are underhanded, <laughs> you know, some of the gamesmanship yeah. and the and the head games he used to play. But if you've got that, I imagine if you've got somebody like that at your club, you're just laughing all the way to the bank, literally and figuratively, because he, he just the absolute gaffer. And I I, I go back and read uh, managing my, is it managing my life the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of it's magnificent. It, it none of it was down to chance. Everything was down to meticulous planning, knowing exactly how to psych out the opponents if they needed psyching out. I mean, he didn't do that every week. You know, he didn't go out and cause trouble every week like like some managers did. You know what I mean? He, he just sort of pick and choose when he would do it. And, and some of the signings, just, you know, you, you, Cantona, Schmeichel. Um, I think that midfield, um, in the you know, especially when the, the so-called kids came in, um, that's the best midfield I think the Premier League's ever yeah. seen, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, to have those kids to, to bring them through and to play, not just the trust in them, to, to blend them as a team mm. amongst the experienced pros as well. In, I mean, he got a lot of people say, you know, a lot of credit obviously is to, to Eric Harrison, the coach down there, but Ferguson is the one who took it to that next level, played these kids, gave them the platform and let them go, didn't he? Well, yeah, he, had, he had some bottle to bring them through as well when you think yeah. about it. The 94 squad that he had, he still rates as one of his best he's ever had. And to let the likes of Kinchelskis and Inscope and then bring through the like Beckham and Scholes, um, a lot of people, as Alan Hansen always said, <laughs> you're not winning anything with kids. And he proved them wrong yet again. So I think his bottle really did help him. Mm. Richard, what do you, I mean, obviously as a Liberals fan, it's, it's different for it's sort of a view of Ferguson, how they took over your mantra uh, of, of being the top club. But... The way he consumed the whole of Manchester United is it, something we don't see anymore, and it, it just really summed up United and Ferguson era, didn't it? Well, I've always actually had a big grudge and admiration for Alex Ferguson. I think it's not something you'll find um, in plentiful supply on Merseyside, but I've always thought that the authority he held and 
And almost the megalomania grip he had over everything at Old Trafford, everything had to be done under his remit. Obviously, things like commercial deals and so forth, they uh, evolve over times. But Ferguson had total jurisdiction over the football side of things. He preserved the um, the legacy of the United Way, this philosophy of bringing young players through. And I think it probably helps having um, the late Mark Busby um, in the corridors at Old Trafford. That obviously helps. And that helped him fine-tune that but I think Ferguson's always been at the forefront of of management in England because he's always been ahead of the curve he, he was doing mm. the things that, that Wenger was probably doing um, probably about five years before Wenger even even um, docked on English shores so I think you've got to admire the, the way he could evolve and he could uh, adapt to the modern game because if you look at a lot of the, the managers from that time I mean you look at um, Howard Kendall Kenny Daglish um, Cluffy Ron Atkinson, others from George Graham, even if you wanted to go down that route. Um, there's a lot of managers who didn't actually adapt and change their style to the ways of the English game, and that's why they fell out of love with the game. And subsequently, with the cups where they were revered, but Ferguson seems to have this this knack of of always getting one up on on his rivals. Even yeah. when you look at, um, I was actually reading his book from 2013 when he said about um, he was going to bow out if they beat City to the title and then obviously we know what happened with that the last minute win for City and he just it drove him on even more some mm-hmm. managers would never come back from that I mean yeah we have to look at Liverpool um, the managers they've had who've gone so agonizingly close to a title have fallen away and then the managers have fallen on the sword a year or so later so it just shows the, the resolve of them and, and the absolute determination and grit to win it's, it is admirable even if it is begrudging admiration yeah, big time, big time. Right, before we talk about some more gaffers of the 90s, um, I'm going to segue to a rival of Alex Ferguson and someone we'll talk about after we spoke to someone who played under him uh, at Arsenal. This is, uh, and he was at Everton at the early 90s. Uh, this interview is cut a little bit short by the dastardly PR who gave us the interview, but here is former Arsenal player Martin Keown talking to me earlier in the week for Alive and Kicking. Martin Keown, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. We're talking 1990s football, as we always do on the podcast, and we take you right back there. You were playing for Everton at the beginning of the decade. What memories do you have uh, of playing at Goodison Park and, and, and that Everton team? Well, that does take me back. Um, Colin Harvey had signed me to play from Aston Villa. Um, Colin was a great guy. He came in, and um, I, was, I was actually very lucky, actually, to spend my early days with quite an illustrious group of players Everton had won many things before them if you think Kevin Ratcliffe Neville Southall Graham Sharp all of these mm. guys you know have been very successful probably the most successful players in in Everton's history and it was a bit of a transitional period to be fair quite a few youngsters had arrived Cotty to say they're youngsters we were all young at one point the likes of Beagree and McDonald and McCall and it was about trying to integrate with those with those winners. And it, it, to be fair, we, we probably underachieved as a group. Mm. Howard Kendall came in, uh, magnificent to work for Howard Kendall. You, you couldn't fail to enjoy him. He was a great man to work for. And, um, you know, I just, well, I, my body memory was living in Liverpool, um, that fever-pitched passion for the game. You know, even the training ground was backing onto the Belfield training ground, onto the local sort of neighbourhood, onto their gardens. And it was just sort of a feeling that everybody just loved football. So kind of the perfect, perfect place for me to go and live and learn. Um, it was just unfortunate that we, we didn't really win anything while I was there. It was, we got, you know, I think, what, top five or six in the Premier League. You can't say that's a disgrace. But, you know, for a club of that size, at the time, you know, so close to its successes, we should have been doing better. Mm. You moved on to Arsenal, back to Arsenal in 1993. Um, you faced yeah. quite a lot of competition in your position at the time because you had Steve Bold, Andy Linegan. What was the fight like to, to play, which was ultimately next to Tony Adams for most of it? Was it quite a tense rivalry between the three of you? Well, when I came back initially, uh, George sort of played me everywhere but central defence because there was two cup competitions that Arsenal were in and I was cup tight, I couldn't play. So I don't think I played in the same position twice. And then I started adopting sort of a, a man-marking role in Europe. Um, you know, Bold was it, Steve Bold was injured for long periods. Andy Linegan came in for a spell. So, yeah, it was kind of like, I don't know if the fans felt they could really take me seriously for a time mm. because I was sort of, you know, jack of all trades and master yeah. of none was, was how it was. Also, I was coming back to a situation of unfinished business and I was, you know, 
desperately to do well. I think trying too hard, really. And I think really that, you know, perhaps under George, I didn't, we didn't see my best football until I think when Wenger came in, he sort of un, unraveled that coil that I'd become, um, calmed me down and, and pretty well got the best for me. And we were lucky. It was a succession of trophies that came in. So, you know, I can't complain. Mm. Arsene Wenger came in shortly after, after uh, Bruce Rioch as well. What did you mm. as a team know of Arsene Wenger when he was first appointed? Because obviously in the press here were a lot of Arsene who were the players the same and what were you expecting from the manager? We didn't know anything about him at all. I think the only person, Glenn Hoddle, I think, did an article in the paper. He'd, he'd worked with him with Mark Haley at Monaco. They talked about, you know, him being uh, a thoroughly nice guy, you know, supremely intelligent. And that was pretty well what we saw on the first day. And it was then all about hard work. Um, he, he, he did, I don't think his English was fantastic at the start. So we just basically worked really hard in training. In fact, we thought there was a feeling that maybe he was trying to shake one of the back four off because we played with a back five mm. in those early days and we, we knew that it wasn't something he wanted to do. Um, so myself, Bold and Tony Adams were playing then in those, those early days and we played with a five right through to the end of the season and just missed out. I think we finished third, third or fourth that season, just missed out on a Champions League place. Uh, but at the start of the next season, it was we went to a back four and I think by this stage I was back in the England fold and um, Arsene Wenger was uh, backing me and picking me for, for most games once I, when I was available. Mm. How much did Arsene change the club? You know, we, we've seen it for our own eyes, but from inside the club, as you've been there before, and then once he came in, how much did he change it in, in those years? I think they're saying this is the last question. I've got to go and do something. Okay, so, yeah, so, yeah, sorry about this. But um, How much did he change the club? I think everybody knows. I mean, that question has been asked many times, mm. but it was a change of philosophy. But, uh, you know, because we'd worked an awful lot with George Graham on, you know, being very difficult to be very good at winning the ball back. And I, and because that was so fresh in our minds and then suddenly someone comes in and asks you to play a little bit more and express yourself a bit more, I think everybody would buy into that because that's... But we mustn't forget the sort of organisation part and, the, you know, the defensive side that I think probably George Graham shaped a lot of our personalities in those early years and we took that into so it was a perfect blend for, for the people who were part of that at that, at that stage brilliant well thank you very much for talking to All us right. Martin brilliant Pleasure. thanks a lot okay, bye bye great stuff there from Martin Kieran sorry again that was cut a little bit short but we got some good stuff there and he mentioned Mr Wenger who we'll, we'll switch to now because um, we're talking managers of the year and managers of the decades of, of the 90s there was only three managers that won the manager the official manager of the year one was Ferguson who we just talked about Wenger was the second um, Dom you had a lot of battles with Wenger at the end of the decade um, but it's fair to say that none of us really knew who he was when he arrived on these shores did we? Um, no, he was at Nagoya Grampus, wasn't he, in Japan, just before he came across. That was the famous line, wasn't yeah, it, from, awesome from Alex Ferguson, yeah. when he turned around and said, turned around and said, he's come here, he's come from Japan. That was the same sort of incredulousness that I think we all had. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think now as well, when you look at it, some of the players that he brought to Arsenal, the likes of Anelka he got for, was it 500,000? Yeah. Um, turned him into a 19.2 million player won the double with Arsenal in his first full season there. Um, I know technically Vieira wasn't one of his signings, but he made Vieira the player he was. Um, and likewise with Henri. Had it not been for Wenger, these players may never have got to that level. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the battles between United and Arsenal, they they were when they were at their real pinnacle at the time. They were some of the best games I've ever seen between the two clubs. Um, I know the weekend just gone was quite a good game. But it doesn't rank to the days of Vieira versus Keane um, and people like that. You just think th those games were littered with incidents. Yeah. I think that we all remember whether it's the Giggs goal or, you know, Keane and Vieira scrapping or they always seem to be, or the Overmars goal. Yeah. Uh, they always seem to be some kind of flashpoint or incident or something that went off in those games. And they were always high stakes games because it was it was always one or the other throughout the 90s, apart from the Blackburn Rovers year. It was one or the other sort of pretty much going for it in Newcastle year as well, in fact. But, you know, certainly later on, once Wenger came, um, it was always, they always seemed to be those two scrapping for honours. So the stakes were high and, and sort of the incidents and the flashpoints were always incredible, really. Yeah, they were they were memorable games. And, and Richard Wenger, you mentioned about him, Ferguson being slightly ahead of him, possibly. But Wenger did come in and he did 
change a lot, especially Arsenal, completely removed the drinking culture and really changed that club, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, Arsenal was a club that was in dire need of, of, of being uh, revolutionised away from the drinking culture. Um, obviously, players would argue that they'd won the title on fish and chips and pints of beer, but football had to evolve and you have to look at at Europe, you have to look at like like Wenger did coming from Japan, and at Arsenal it was a pretty big uh, big job because you had people like Bold, Keown, Dixon, Adams, they, you know that that face and back foot who who probably were a bit happy to rest on the laurels. They obviously won titles. Uh, they probably wanted more, of course, but they probably didn't think it was possible in a, in an era where United were dominating. And if you look at um, a side from the Blackburn title win in '95. United didn't really have any challenges before Wenger came yeah. in. I mean, it was always... Obviously, we have leads at the beginning of the decade, but there wasn't really anyone actually truly challenging them. Arsenal were always there or thereabouts. And Liverpool, before Wenger really got his feet under the table, Liverpool were probably the only team who actually were ready to take the fight to them. And then they just didn't have the mental resolve. So Wenger coming in really did change football in England. And, and the Premier League is, is probably better for it. I know he hasn't enjoyed the greatest success in, in the league for about 12 years now um, possibly could go into 13 if they don't win the title this year but, but you can't underestimate what he's actually done for that club and you look at how he's had to he's had to adapt himself he's had to actually uh, work within a budget to accommodate and facilitate the uh, the move from Harbury to the Emirates so he's, he's had to become a man of, a man of all trades at Arsenal similar to what Ferguson is well was at United um, so I think you, you can't really you can't really um I suppose you can't really do, do them a disservice, even though we, you can say it's been 12 years since you lost won a title. It was um, nigh on 10 when for an actual trophy. You've got yeah. to actually say that he's he's had to do similar to what Ferguson had to do at United, if not more. Yeah, no. Those two really were, as we, as we said, the, the standout two from that decade. Um, it's interesting to look. Kenny Dalglish, incidentally, was the other person who won the Premier League Manager of the Year in that decade, of course, for the, the title win of Blackburn in 1995. But it's actually interesting to look at the LMA Manager of the Year award. In the oh, Blackburn. this is an incredible list. Because this list, I mean, the LMA, <laughs> obviously, it's <laughs> nice to reward managers who do go do things in a season that don't just win the title. I appreciate that. Hold but, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Danny Wilson <laughs> yep. gets gets a little club promoted, and sorry, Barnsley fans, but you can't think that was married. You know, was that the year they got promoted? Or was that? I would, yeah, it has to be. Yeah, yeah, that that to me is absolutely incredible that he was considered for that. You know, it, it's kind of. Well, I, just, I don't know. Like you say, the list is crazy because until I kind of researched it this week, I didn't. You know, you, we all remember George Burley winning it in two thousand, and we, I, that was kind of stand out at the time because he didn't win the league. Obviously, the Ipswich did very well that season; they finished fifth in the league. Mm-hmm. But then, like we say, like so this name, as Joe says, ninety three was Dave Bassett for Sheffield United, ninety four was Joe Kinnear of Wimbledon before he started getting the names of Newcastle players wrong. In ninety five, really? it was Frank Clark of Nottingham Forest. <laughs> Again, great season, but. It didn't really. I didn't think they were good enough to to win Manager of the Year. Ninety six was Peter Reid and, and Sunderland, a Sunderland team who were in the first division, stormed to the title. Danny Wilson, as you mentioned, Dave Jones of Southampton in ninety eight, a very another one, and then ninety nine Ferguson, quite rightly winning the treble. Uh, one. These I mean, these managers were great managers, but it's a, a very odd list, wouldn't you say, Dom? Yeah, um, isn't it voted by the other uh, managers yeah. in the league? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So yeah, there was obviously people were looking at teams that have won the Premier League and said, okay, you'd expect Fergie to have won the LMA. He's won the uh, Premier League one already. Maybe they just thought, well, there's four leagues to pick from here. Barnsley, obviously being a smaller club, to go and get promoted obviously was a big achievement that year and they've probably thought that he's deserved it more on that merit. It's good to see. Yeah, though saying that, it would have been Wenger's first Premier League win that same season. (laughs) Um, So, or the season after, rather. So, yeah, it's just... It's, yeah, it is nice to see other people winning it. But like you say, Frank Clark's a bit of a head-scratcher. And, and Dave Jones, I mean, I remember Southampton having a, a good season in the late 90s, but to, to be manager of the year is, is quite an achievement. What do you think of that list, Richard? Uh, well, it's just basically an old boys club, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, yeah. When you look at the list, I mean, you look at some of them. I mean, the classic one, and I know it's obviously a different decade, um, when 2014 rolled around and obviously we had that thrilling title race between Liverpool and Manchester City, um, you would have thought that either Brendan Rodgers or Manuel Pellegrini would, have, would, would rightfully be handed the awards. Who was the winner? 
Tony Pulis. <laughs> Fragments isn't win through. So it kind of shows you, as you say, Ash, um, Ferguson winning it in 99. I think you couldn't really give it to anybody else. But you uh, you have to look at the list again. I mean, Wenger won a double and he didn't even uh, receive any recognition. Why Frank Clark? I have no idea. Um, I mean, that, that was the season Forest had Collie Moore and the great Brian Rory and Steve Stone. That was it. They had that good team at that but, time, didn't you they? You know, they had a good season. Yeah, what did he win? Yeah, exactly. It's Even Joe Royal would have been a better candidate. You won the FA Cup last exactly. season. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a it's a very odd list. Um, I've got I mean, some other mentions as well that I must say that uh, people on Twitter have said to me. Had uh, Ollie speaks uh, Gordon Strachan. He mentioned the sharpest match post match interviews in the Premier League era, which is very true. Ralph Welsh, who um, who's been on the show a few times, a West Ham fan, complete list here. He's got Tilio Lombardo, another player manager. Steve okay. Coppel, Joe Royal was Domchester, Ozzy Ardiles. <laughs> Um, mixed sort of fortune in the 90s. George Graham, of course, in the early 90s when the leave for Arsenal. Roy Evans, who we've mentioned, who you can also listen to an interview with Roy on a previous podcast during our matches of the uh, uh, decade pod, which is a good interview. And then Joe Kinnear again, Terry Venables. Uh, we also had from Register, Michael, Hoddle and Keegan. We'll talk England managers in just a second. Uh, T.W. Atkins said Barry Fry. Brilliant name in the 90s. <laughs> I mean, for a different I've got reasons. A, can I tell you my Barry Fry Go story? Go on, tell us the Barry Fry story. I once, um, I've got a friend who interviewed Barry Fry um, at and when he was at Peterborough. I think not. He was past, yeah, when because he, he went to Peterborough after Birmingham, didn't he? And throughout the whole course of the interview with Barry Fry, one testicle was hanging out of his oh, shorts. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have the heart to tell him. Oh, <laughs> what you was sorry, he Mr. too busy sorry, Mr. peeing round corners of ground? Was he, <laughs> was he doing that? Because that's the story he used to tell, didn't he, to get rid of the... Was it the Peterborough curse that he got rid of when he peed? Yeah, in yeah, yeah. And, and they got the gypsy in or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off the back of that documentary where I think every other word was a swear word that he did mm. in the 90s as well. Uh, one more Twitter mention to uh, somebody who has also been on the show earlier in season, Xavier, if you're looking at Abroad, which again, you know, there's um, the plethora of names from abroad. Look at Van Gaal, Lippi, Capello. We mentioned Johan Cruyff earlier, Sachi. There's some great names abroad that we have to mention. We can't really have time to speak in detail. So, so there's a lot of great names there. Um, one that always says 90s to me, um, quite like Dave Bassett, he was the man to go to when in a relegation fight, but Ron Atkinson. I mean, he just sums up the 90s for me. He was kind of that character, um, the kind of guy you go to. I mean, he, at the start of the decade, you know, he did very well at Chef on Wednesday, nearly took Villa to the title. Um, by the end of it, he was sitting in the wrong dugout at Nottingham Forest. But he, he, was, he was very much 90s, wouldn't you say, Richard? Yeah, well, Big Ron, probably the only man who can get away with a cameo appearance on Dream Team. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Remarkable. First half um, the manager, we, we mentioned that a few weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, and he's um, he's actually originally from Merseyside. Um, I don't know if many people will be shouting about that, but you've got to say, for what he actually achieved, especially with Villa, I mean, he got into um, a couple of finals, a couple of good days out there, um, and the foundation he laid for Brian Little to come in and, and lead them on to more success in the 1996 Coca-Cola Cup. You've got to say that journeyman managers like Big Ron uh, you don't see many of them around the Premier League now and the ones you do see they're not in the same class they can't really walk around uh, look like they just got off a flight from Benidorm and um, <laughs> and, and making a bit of a fool of themselves like, like he did as you say with the Nottingham Forest against Cincinnati but he's the only man who could probably carry that off really yeah, great, great memories of, of Big Ron. Um, we're going to briefly talk England managers because we're already running out of time. Um, obviously, England managers varied in sort of success in the 90s. Um, started with good old Bobby Robson in 1990, then obviously Graham Taylor. Um, Terry Venables, great success in year 96, followed by Glenn Hoddle and what happened towards the end of the decade before Kevin Keegan, who's a name we haven't even mentioned yet, the great Newcastle team of the 90s as well. Um, I'm going to go to each of you. So, Joe, of that lot, favourite England manager? <laughs> Venables, yeah. absolutely. I think um, I think he was, you know, if if he hadn't have been for his off the field shenanigans, he'd probably have stayed there ten years. Yeah, I think he was. He, he seemed to be the first England manager that we'd ever had that had a foreign sensibility. If that makes sense, yeah. you know. Um, I, I, Having I worked thought, abroad as well, of course. Well, yeah, obviously he'd worked. He'd done. He'd worked at Barcelona and everything. Um, but yeah, absolutely, Terry Venables, and the way that you know, I, I don't know whether you can remember, but the stick that he got at the time for sticking with that four-three-two-one, um, yeah, with Shearer at the top tree. of it, yeah, and for two for two years, he was like, "No, this is going to work. This is going to work. Just stick with me." And we weren't scoring goals, 
in any of those friendlies. I, I can barely remember us, us going for it. And, and she was even turned around and said, you know, oh, I thought we were on a hide to nothing here. I thought it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work. And then all of a sudden you get to 1996 and it works. And if Paul Gascoigne's, you know, half a second quicker, then we're into the European final for the first time ever. Yeah. Um, charismatic, intelligent, very charming at dealing with the press, which is just a vital thing. I mean, you know, for that time, an excellent tactician, an excellent man. And, you know, he kept us up in the 2000 season. So, you know, I've always got a bit of a soft, soft spot for him. Yeah. Yeah. But um, absolutely Terry Venables. Yeah. Richard, do you agree? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a big Terry Venables fan. I think um, that England team of your 96, particularly with the the one that saw off Holmes in the four one group win. That was um that was probably the pinnacle of, of English football on the international stage in my lifetime, um certainly. And it's it's kind of a performance that I've I've held in a high esteem for probably best part of two decades. And then I saw Barcelona live and then that kind of blew it all out the water. But um but yeah, I think Venables you do wonder what what might have been whether England if Gaza is that, that split second quicker to meet the ball across the box against Germany. Do we go on? Do we beat the Czech Republic? It, you, do, you do feel like it's an opportunity that was sorely missed um, and properly greater than 1990. Yeah. Um, we're going to make it a queen, a queen sleep. I can't even get that out. A clean sweep, are we? A go- a- um, no, I'd, I'd say uh, Howard Wilkinson. You forgot him in his oh, caretaker. Oh, well. <laughs> you ruined it. Uh, but yes, Howard Wilkinson <laughs> of 99. But surely I'm, I'm, that's a joke from you, Dominic. Yeah, no, that is. Um, I'm actually the Glenn Hodderweirer. Yeah. So um, I was, yeah, I, I was, I remember not Euro 96, but I remember France 98 better. So for me, I'd, I'd have to go with Glenn Hoddle because it's what I, I know and remember. And it was a sorry way for him to end his uh, time with England, um, obviously saying what he did. But I think he, the England team that he had should definitely have gone on to better things. I know with the Beckham sending off, um, didn't help things, but that team was definitely good enough to go on and win that World Cup. We proved that in the Tomwa in '97, um, and I just again, it's the same old thing with England. We just always seem to fall at that hurdle that we should really get across. Yeah, um, and yeah, again, I think Hoddle probably could have taken the team on a lot further. Probably should have used Matt Letizia a bit more than he did. Mm, yeah, um, and given the team a bit more fluidity up front. But yeah, apart from that, I can't really say anybody else. Bar I always thought. I always thought him not using Matt Letizier was such a peculiar thing because they were essentially very similar players. Yeah. And 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 why why Glenn Hoddle decided not to use Letizier more when he had voiced his frustrations about not being used by, uh, I hope I'm getting this right, like Ron Greenwood and that sort of era manager in the 80s. I, I always found that a strange contradiction from Hoddle, but I suppose he was full of them. Yeah. Now... Um, did anyone see the uh, documentary that Greg Dyke did on um, the next single manager back in 1996? It's on YouTube somewhere, and it's quite quite interesting viewing because it's in the in the wake of um, Terry Venables leaving, and it obviously goes around Wembley, um, showing you the old school journalists sitting there in the press bar having a pint at the England game and so forth. And it's interesting that, uh, that Greg Dyke actually went on to head up the FA after that because um, I wasn't really inspired by the way he came out on that. Mm, interesting. I'll have to give that a watch, Richard. Thanks for that tip. That's good. Right, we are running out of time and, and Gabe, our producer, is needing to go out the door. So what I normally do on these things is quickly go around and see any more mentions. So I'm just going to get an, a couple of names for any if, if wanted to mention any more. So Joe, anyone we haven't mentioned you want to quickly oh, shout out to? This is, this is scandalous as a, as, a, as a Middlesbrough fan, but I think English football would have been a lot more boring without Kevin Keegan yeah, in the 1990s. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, you know, I love it, love it, love it. They've got to go to Middlesbrough and all the rest of it. Uh, I just think, you know, as much as I really hated Newcastle at that time, uh, Keegan made it interesting with his sort of insane ways and I, in his insane football ways, attack, 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 attack. You know, that was what they were all about. I was there for Faustino Asprias debut who a lot of people seem to think sort of blew that title bid for Newcastle United um, he came on that day Middlesbrough were winning 1-0 he came on and Aspria versus Chris Morris and it was just he was an outstanding you know you could see why he signed him what he thought he was going to bring to that side it was probably the wrong decision mm-hmm. but um, it was a fantastic season and, and capped off by you know um, Newcastle United not winning the league at our place <laughs> yes brilliant it's a great feature in the new 442 magazine about that season actually it's a good read uh, Richard any names we want to we want to mention before we go. 
Uh, good or bad? Any, either. Whoever you want um, to mention. Okay, you've got a couple here. Martin O'Neill, um, yep. based on what he did with Leicester. Um, Mike Walker. Yes. Of course, yes. Yeah. We put him on Twitter earlier. Yes, should have given a mention. Yeah, we did Sultan at Norwich. Mike. Um, yeah. Not spoken fondly by his, uh, his former players, but also with the, um, the quirk from the 90s of the chairman becoming caretaker managers. This was an interesting one with... Um, Ron Nodes to Palace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there's a name to conjure yeah. with. Yeah. Here's one more for you. Uh, Michael Nyson, the old um, yep. the former Carlisle. investor who yeah. took Carlisle over Carlisle. Yeah, yeah. He took him down and was saved by Jimmy Goff, the goalkeeper on the last day. Yeah, great story that is. We're going to cover that in our moments of the 90s. Yeah, some good names there. But yeah, Mike Walker, we put him on Twitter actually. Yeah, he was on my list to mention. Did great stuff at Norwich. Not so much Everton, then kind of disappeared. Don, we'll go to you finally. Um, any names we haven't mentioned you wanted to just give a shout to? Yeah, I was actually going to say Mike Walker, but you yeah. beat me to it. But, um, ah. I think Omar Hitzfeld, he uh, yeah. was obviously a big German manager, um, in the German league rather, um, in the 90s. Harry Redknapp's not had a mention He's either. not had, no, he did good um, stuff at West Ham, yeah. And and Bournemouth, yeah. Um, we could go all night, there are so many names. Could go on, yeah. You know, Rupert yeah. was the first foreign manager to win the FA Cup with Chelsea, then Viali, of course. Do, do, hold on, hold on. Why do you have to keep bringing these things up? Because you mentioned Middlesbrough far too much, so I have to kind of back you down and go, all right, all right, oh, to level God. you out, Joel, that's all, that's all I'm trying to do. Okay, okay. Um, I was going to throw out who was the first ever manager to leave his job in the 90s, but I don't know if anyone would random guess that. Well, that'd be quite difficult. <laughs> Ray Harford is the answer to quiz fans. That one. Ray Harford left, uh, left Luton on the 3rd of January, 1990. Bye. That was the, that's the I wasn't even born, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a couple of things to say before we go. Um, next week, whisper it quietly, and so the podcast gods don't hear us. We're going to try and do video games. So, apologies in advance, it doesn't happen. We're going to try. That is. I'll be plan. waiting for a phone call. Yeah, Joel will be waiting for a phone call. Yeah, I'm good with my video games. <laughs> well, Dom's available if we need him as well. So, yeah, that put that in your diaries. We'll let you know what day it's recording and popping into your devices. Um, we're also going to be on the Monday Night Carlo podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, nearer the time, I'll give you a shout out on that. Um, it's World Book Day, so I have to give a shout out to the AK90s book, Alive and Kicking, available from Amazon and all good bookstores. You can see the link on the Twitter feed. Uh, apart from that, it just remains to say thank you to my guest. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for having me once again. Always. Richard, debut. Thank you. Welcome back anytime. Thanks, thanks Ash. And Dom, thank you for coming on again, mate. Thanks, Ash. Brilliant. Hope, thank you for listening. Um, we've got another interview following this, so stay tuned. Even more 90s pleasure. Um, from former hard man of the decade, former Birmingham and Coventry defender, Liam Daish is following this show, so listen to that. But until then, keep it 90s. Liam Daish, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always good to hear from a uh, 90s player. So we'll take you back there now. You started the decade uh, at Cambridge United, actually. What was it like um, for a young player at kind of playing the lower leagues uh, during that time? Uh, it was a great time. You know, it was first-team football, playing first-team football at an early age and uh, playing with some, um, you know, good good players and players that were were brought together um, under Chris Turner and John Beck and uh, we were all sort of around the same age really and uh, yeah it was great we we had a great time we we uh, we achieved quite a bit on the pitch and um, yeah, we enjoyed enjoyed our, each other's company as well we had a great spirit and uh, yeah it was it was a special time you helped the club to successive promotions as well I mean how big a deal was that for a couple like Cambridge United well, it was you know it was massive, um, really. You know the club had been on a little bit of a downward spiral, and um, you know I think when, we, when I joined the club, we were the season before I joined. They finished, I think it was something like you know the fourth from bottom of the old fourth division, and then within three years there was back-to-back promotions. You know, um, Wembley appearance in the playoff. Uh, uh, um, Six round, two six round uh, quarter final FA mm. Cup appearances, um, you know, and and we went to some real heady heights, and you know, just missed out on getting into the first division. But you know, we uh, we we uh, it was a special time. Good lads, good players. Um, you know, we were well drilled and well coached, and um, you know, there's a real togetherness for uh, about the team. Mm. It led you to, to a move to Birmingham City uh, and under the enigma that is Barry Fry. What are your first impressions of Barry and, and of, the, of the club? 
Well, I, I played for Barry. Um, I went, when I first came went to Cambridge, I went out on loan um, briefly to uh, to Barnet when Barry was there. So I knew Barry, and um, and towards the end of my time at Cambridge, um, I'd probably been there too long. I'd had a few injuries at the end as well and you know i think it was i'd served my time there really and um and then barry came in for me and it, it just you know it was again it was another uh another challenge a different challenge um and a big challenge with with birmingham city you know that massive club different club to cambridge um but again you know we under barry um and the lads that that i played with we um we achieved there, you know. We won a double. We won the auto windscreens at uh, um, uh, at Wembley um, and got promoted um, as well from League Two. Scored over 100 goals, I think, uh, more than 100 points or close to. And um, you know, then then it all took off. You know, I was part of the start, really, of a of a of when you know David Sullivan and Karen Brady took over the club, and it was it was uh, again. Birmingham were on a little bit of a downward spiral. There was a bad feeling about the club and things were hadn't they hadn't really enjoyed any success for a while and um it was the start of of another, you know, journey and a and a great time as well. You mentioned that uh, auto windscreens final. Was that the final when Paul Tate revealed that T shirt? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Tate he did, yeah. Um we did were you? under we we didn't we didn't know it, it, it was, <laughs> I think it was it was a goal, the golden goal, and he scored it. Yeah. Um, against Carlisle, and then went and revealed the t-shirt. We had no idea that he had the t-shirt <laughs> on, but um, but yeah, you know, Tatey's Tatey's and he you know that's the sort of thing. He's a proper blue nose, and um, yeah, there was a bit of an uproar from that. Bit of um, yeah, you know, I think he got trouble, didn't he? Yeah. 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 For anyone but, who's um, listening, he doesn't remember it. It was a, a, a slur at Villa, wasn't it? If I remember right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it, it was a bit of a slow thriller, and uh, but you know he, he is he is a blue nose, and um, but you know it was it was, again great times there, and and really that's where the recent success for Birmingham started. Really, um, you know from then on it was you know it was built on Trevor Francis, then Steve Bruce, sort of built on that, and then they got into the Premier League, and you know but. It, we were sort of amongst us the, the, when we knew that something was happening with with the new owners. Mm. Barry Farr, going back to him just slightly, is what's he like to play under? Because obviously we've seen the documentaries that he did. We know what character mm. he is. Do you have any sort of stories you could tell us about Barry? Yeah, loads. But <laughs> I mean, it's, you probably couldn't broadcast a lot of them. But um, <laughs> no, listen, he was colourful. Um, he was good to play under. He, he mm. treated you as a man. Um, you know, he he enjoyed some of his. I wouldn't say he was a tactician, but he knew he knew he knew as a player. He earned the club a lot of money um, with buying players from sort of lower league or not even non-league, and then and then selling them on. He had a good eye for players, enthusiastic as hell. Um, you know, mad, uh, a bit eccentric, but good fun to be around. Um, and the one thing with Barry as well, he never held a grudge. You know, mm. I'd stand up rails with Barry. I was his skipper, um, and we'd fall out, especially if the results hadn't gone. The result hadn't gone well. But there was no, um, there was no hangover to that. It, it didn't, it didn't carry on. You know, it was uh, he, he respected you. As long as you were, you know, um, if you were having a moan for the right reasons or having an argument for the right reasons, he, he understood you cared. And, um, you know, there was no hangover. But, you know, there was it was like revolving doors early on when we first met players that he was that were coming in and going out when he first took over. Um, but as I say, he eventually got his team what he wanted and um, and, and made the club a lot of money on, on players' sales. Yeah, I read a story actually of you. I don't know if it's true. It, it, I read it uh, well before speaking to you. That you once celebrated a goal at Birmingham by playing a trumpet that was thrown in the crowd. Is that true? Uh, yeah, we. Sc- no, we, what happened? We we scored. Um, we beat. We went away. To, I think it was Chester, and uh, we scored. And, and one of the fans, Blues fans, just threw on a on a trumpet. 
so I, you know, we we were celebrating. I picked it up, blew it, and the um, and the ref booked me for it. And I actually, it, it took me over, I think five bookings or something. So I actually missed a game, I think, due to it was ridiculous. You know, he had no, obviously, no real sense of humour, and yeah. um, you know, getting booked for blowing somebody else's trumpet, not even my own. <laughs> Easily the silliest booking you ever had. Uh, I think so. I, don't, I think that that take a lot, a uh, lot of beating, you know. Um, but you know, it was as I say, just thrown on the pitch. Yeah, picked it up, blew it, threw it back, and I got booked for it. So. Very silly, very but, um, silly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you finished the the nineties uh, commentary and in the Premier League. What was it like to to play in the top flight and uh, for a quite a talented commentary side at the time? Um, yeah, I know you came in to help shore up the back, but what, what was that team like? Yeah, well, we can't, I, I, I signed, I think it was in, in February, and, um, um, you know, the, there was a little bit of a fear of relegation around the club. They weren't, you know, they were in the lower lower end of the table, and, and he, I think we, we managed we managed to uh, stay up in the last day of the season um, with a draw at home to Leeds. Um, uh, but it was it, I, I really enjoyed it. I, lo- I love working under Ron Atkinson. Um, I enjoyed and learned a lot of from from Gordon Strachan from when he um, he took over. And um, the only regret is you know he was there. That I probably that's where I finished my career because I, 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 I uh, we were due to play Man United on the Saturday and on on the Friday in training. I tore my uh, ruptured. Uh, cruciate mm. and although you know I got back to I sort of got back playing I could never get back to playing at, at, at a level where I could train every day and I needed to train every day and the way Gordon's teams wanted you had to be fit and strong and uh, and be able to train every day and, and, and you know as I say the only regret was that's it was it was where I injured my club uh, injured my knee and, and, and my career professionally stopped um but you know it, it was one of them things um probably a little bit too young really i was you know i think i had the best years ahead of me really or you know i think i was only about 28 29 mm. then so it was a, it was a shame but you know good experience you know good club and um you know, unfortunately, they've they've got hit on a hard time since. But hopefully, they're under Tony Mowbray. They're um, they look like they're in the ascendancy now again. Yeah, it'd be good to see them back in the ascendancy for sure. Um, just before you go, then we like to ask the players uh, who played in that era who was the best player, especially for a defender like you. I know you were known for being quite a hard-nosed defender. What who was the best player you played against and the best player you played with? Oh. Played against they all they were all tough believe me but <laughs> I mean I played against some you know the likes of Fowler and Ferguson Duncan Ferguson and Mark Hughes and uh, Robbie Fowler and you know some, some top players you know mm. Teddy Sheringham but I think the one that stood out for me really was um, Eric Cantona yeah I think he was just uh, you know he was physical. He could be physical. He, he had great vision, great touch. You know, he was strong. He was quick. You know, he, he just had, he was just complete, and he was one of them as defenders. You know, you like to get the better end, or you try and put put your physicality on them, try and bully him a little bit. And um, but you know, he, he just he didn't he didn't fight. He wasn't worried about that. He I think he sort of quite enjoyed the physical side of it as well. And and of course, what a great tech technician he was as well with the ball and how about with who was the best player you played with at club level um at club level um well i played i played with some good players you know right back from people like Dion dublin and mm. um and gary McAllister and noel whelan and players that i played with uh, internationally as well with the Republic of Ireland I made my debut with David O'Leary as a young 20 year old and um, and played played with Paul McGrath you know so I would say Paul McGrath as a defender I think he was the one that stood out um, in, internationally and, and at club level um, 
I think I think watching Gordon Strachan play at yeah. forty years old, I mm. think that was something else. You know, his, his you know um, enthusiasm and um, uh, and his fitness of, of that age. I think that really stood out. Really, that you know, you looked after yourself. You could play to to whenever, and and, and that's and that's what he did. Mm. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Liam. No problem. Cheers. Thanks a lot. See you later. Bye. Bye. This podcast is a West 12 Media and Burble Media production. 